Good morning. This is Real Estate for Breakfast podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Coover. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric, now national, commercial real estate podcast, which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated real estate problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. Mostly business, though. I started thinking this was going to be more of a legal podcast because I'm a lawyer at Clark Hill, a multi-jurisdictional national law firm that handles all sorts of uh, varieties of legal matters. But, you know, I just ended up thinking that I just really liked talking to the real estate professionals about what it is that they're working on. And today we have an excellent excellent guest. But before we get to that, I just want to say thank you for, we've had a few month delay, but somehow our RSS subscribers and our, our listeners are have been growing, even though we haven't put out a podcast in two months. But we have a, a really great lineup of guests over the coming months. I took a little summer or winter sabbatical and, and now I'm back into it. So we have a host of great guests coming up, including Matt Katsaros of CA Ventures. CA Ventures is a Chicago-based developer, and uh, it's a really interesting company. It's right here in Prudential Plaza. It's the same building that I'm located in. So Matt is an old college friend, and when we were going to stop and get coffee one day, we're like, you know what? Let's just do this on the podcast because CA Ventures is – Kind of like when we had Sterling Bay and Mid-America and some of the other companies. Mid-America has been around a long time, but we had like Sterling Bay. I, I really like talking to these people that are in these um, super interesting companies that have exploded in growth over the past decade. And CA Ventures falls in that category. It was founded in 2004 as a, uh, as a real estate investment firm. And now it's it's got almost uh, 50,000 units it's delivered of student accommodation across 40 major university markets that's kind of what i think of as ca is ma- these major student housing developments that you see all over the country and it's it's really grown and now there's a variety of other asset classes that it's working on and that's what we're going to talk to matt about and i just want to know how it went from a company founded in 2004 to just do, having done billions of dollars in development over the past 10, 15 years. So I'm really excited to talk to Matt and I'm, I'm excited to get back on the podcast. And thanks to listeners and everyone who asked me when the next podcast was coming out. I appreciate your support. So I'll stop talking now and we'll get to the interview. Thanks so much. Oh, before I go, I should mention, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always look at our our, uh, website, realestatebreakfast.com. And you can also reach me at pcoover at clarkhill.com. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Good morning. This is Phil Coover, the host of the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. Today I have Matt Katsaros of CA Ventures. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a, it was a far travel for you to get here. One elevator bank. Yeah. <laughs> Two so, minutes. So just a little bit of background. Matt is with CA Ventures, and they're also in Prudential Plaza, so just a few floors away. And I've known Matt for a very long time, and I'm excited to have Matt on the show because CA Ventures is one of the fastest growing real estate companies in Chicago, and 
not really just a Chicago-based real estate company anymore. You're national. You opened up the London office. Right, yeah, international with London, and then we also have South America open for student housing as well. That's awesome. So yeah. give us give us the broad overview. Well, high-level um, CA is an investment management company. Uh, we invest on behalf of our institutional partners in real estate developments, which we build. Um, we have about 250 people in Chicago, but that is growing at a rapid pace. We're two floors of this building, and we'll, we'll probably be expanding beyond that soon. Um, within the, of the platform, we really have five verticals. Uh, we build student housing. We've done that in about 30 states. We build senior housing. We build apartments, and then we're just kicking off industrial development as well as uh, we have an office business, which is primarily acquisitions of existing assets. Uh, but every year we do, we target about a billion and a half of development annually. That is an extraordinary amount of development. Um, website says it was founded in 2004. Did it start with student housing? It did. Um, our founder, Tom Scott, grew up in a, on a college campus where we both went, Champaign-Urbana. That's right. Um, grew up around the around the business, was in corporate real estate in Chicago for a long time as a CFO, coming with an accounting background. Um, in 2004, decided to um, pick up some acquisitions in, in Champaign-Urbana with friends and family and quickly grew that into uh, what was Campus Acquisitions, which is the CA in our company. Oh, I was going to that's all on my list here of okay. questions. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone always, now that we're expanded nationally, people think we're California-based. I get California adventures a lot as a... Yeah, <laughs> right. Like we're, people say Chicago. Right. Yeah. But it's Campus Acquisitions. And in 2007, really kicked off the development um business as opposed to just acquiring and built on Green Street a 24-story tower. So it really came out swinging. So you, you all are the people responsible for making Green Street unrecognizable from yeah. when we were there. Yeah, I remember the Burger, the Burger King? <laughs> yeah. Well, we call that the Old Whopper because that was the biggest deal we had ever done and it was on a Burger King site. Oh, that's awesome. So that's, and from there it was really off to the races and Tom was really one of the pioneers in uh, purpose, what we call purpose-built student housing, which is off-campus housing for students. And since it's built, I think it's, um, I at least track 30,000 plus beds, which are, we do it by the bed in student housing uh, versus unit. Um, and then again, over the years, it has grown the business into several verticals, but really student housing is the foundation. So also a lot of those lines, when you hear older people talking about, and I include myself in that group, yeah. uh, talking <laughs> about how in my day, the college kids, we lived in these little dorms that were old and mm -hmm. no good. There's no air conditioning. And now all the college kids live in nice facilities. Uh, all, again, you all are partly responsible for Very much for responsible that for it, yeah. yeah. I mean, we do seven or eight of those a year. Most of those buildings are six to 700 beds, um, ranging from studios up to six bedrooms, depending on the campus and the requirement of what, what the kids want. But they're all fully amenitized, pools, you know, workout facilities, co-working space, spas, dog rooms, I mean, you name it, they get everything these dog days. Dog rooms, yeah. unbelievable. I mean, they've got, you know, infinity pools on the roof on some of them. I mean, it's... It's a quality of life. I haven't lived in an apartment in Chicago even, you know, that we're giving these kids. Yeah, so. they're in for a rude awakening well, when right. they graduate and come to the city. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, 
it, are any of those developments public-private partnerships? Do you all use, do you work in tandem with the universities on any sort of those developments? And I know that that's not in your vertical, it's but not, I, I don't mean to ignore your vertical for a minute. We're definitely getting to it. No, we're, I did, I worked on the student housing team prior to, to taking over the pipeline for residential. Um, we haven't done anything. Most of our stuff, 100% of it actually, is, is off campus. Um, however, we were just selected um, in the last year or so by the University of California system to be a preferred developer for their on-campus. Um, and we're one of eight in the country. Uh, that means that if the University of California wants to expand their on-campus dormitories, uh, we'll be one of the chosen to do a P3, a public-private deal with them. So we, that was our first initiative into public-private. Um, and then we recently have hired uh, Peter Isaac, who runs our P3 program. We needed a full-time person for that now, and he's growing his team. So we will be getting into more P3-type relationships, but generally all the stuff we've built in the past has been private. That's really cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Well, actually, before I do, I got one more student housing college question. Uh, so do you anticipate future rapid growth in, in that area, or do you think that it's the market's getting saturated with nice student housing, or do you think there's a lot more out there? I think it's changing. I think it's certainly become more saturated. I mean, the amount that's been built over the last decade is, is pretty staggering compared to what was built, which was almost nothing new, at least in the high-rise and mid-rise space. Um, again, it, because I don't work on that, I haven't for a little over a year. I don't know exactly the target, but I think that the go, going after the high-rise, really, you're limiting yourself to t- probably the 1% to 5% of what people will pay in that mm-hmm. in the student housing space, right? Tenant base. Um, so I think what they're looking to do is maybe diversify into some more, not affordable, I don't want to use that word, but more middle-priced but new. So maybe it's three-story with a pool at the surface level versus a 20-story tower. Uh, how you are know? these kids going to survive I don't know the how they're going to live the with that. I know. Um, so I think it's differentiating and attracting to a larger tenant base because the high-rise stuff, there's quite a quite a bit of it out there. All right. Well, let's talk about your vertical. So, tell us about what you're working on right now. So, in the residential um, vertical, we're kind of bifurcated between two disciplines. We build high rise, uh, which is generally between you know twenty and thirty story, two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty unit buildings. It's kind of our sweet spot. And then we build uh, what we call garden style, which is three story walk up frame buildings much more or less expensive to, to construct and surface parking and the reason that we've kind of chosen those two versus you know kind of building whatever we think may work for the, the site is you know we found in the Midwest and Southeast construction prices have remained while well, they're certainly going up uh, at a level where we can build and still make money doing high-rise but if you look at the coasts um, it's very challenging to where returns are for us to really get excited about high rise. However, not many people of our developers of our size are doing garden. Um, some people call it workforce housing, you know, it's but it's certainly very much in demand. And the wood frame um, construction is not has not exploded to quite the degree that the, the high rise type of construction has. Right. Um, tell me a little bit about, I'm going to circle back to the types of assets, but you said something really interesting when we were uh, just talking before we get going about the change in 
sort of the philosophy and the thesis driven and tell us a little bit about CA Ventures and how it operates. Is it, does it use its own capital? Does it take on investors? Like what sort of its strategy sets? Yeah. So, um, Really, as, a, as an investment management platform, we're investing on behalf of our institutional partners. We're also investing our own capital in the deals. Um, each vertical, the five that I mentioned, you know, senior, residential, student, office, industrial, are all really run independently as their own businesses. They each have their own capital partners. Oh, okay. Um, you know, some are more programmatic than others, meaning that they've got a joint venture capital partner where they do every deal with the same partner. A um, little bit more of a fund structure, mm-hmm. um, and then ours is is currently more where we have investors that we know want to be in certain markets and do certain things, and so we try to find the deal that fits that capital need. Um, less programmatic, but still really driven by that investment thesis. Um, I think when we were growing originally as a student housing company, the idea was more find whatever we could on whatever campus we could. Clearly, it worked very well. It was yeah, a great, great, right. great, 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 great business. Um, as we've gotten into multiple verticals and have become a bigger company, um, we're really trying to hone in on what our capital partners want because that's one of the hardest parts of the business is, yeah. is capitalizing deals. Right, right. Not, not fun to find a good deal that you work on for a year and then can't find capital. Right. And so we do it the opposite way. We, we try to see what the capital wants and then fill that need. Is it usually one source of capital to say, what would you like? Or do you, just, do you have multiple sources of capital that you can, you talk to all of them and you feel you find a general consensus of what they're looking for? So the idea would be the, the, the way that we'd like to do it in residential would be the way that we do it in senior housing and student, which is really a programmatic partnership. They've got um, capital partners that kind of come into every deal. Yeah. Um, if they don't, they can go elsewhere and find another partner. But they they have a relationship set up with a large amount of equity that they can repeat that kind of rinse and repeat model. Right. Uh, we we are looking for that, um, and we'll probably have that set up in the next 12 months. But given that we're kind of the newest vertical to grow at this rate, we're currently, we probably have a half a dozen that we go to per deal. Yeah. Um, so it, w- w- I might have missed it. When did you start this vertical? Well, I mean, Tom Scott, our CEO, has been doing residential real estate since he was in college. I mean, since he graduated college. I think it right. was his first three flat, on, three flat on Southport, like in the 80s or something like that. But um, and CA Residential as a company really has been around since he started the company Campus Acquisitions. He's always been doing CA urban type projects. And they've kind of grown and grown and grown. I would say to where we are to the, the, the vertical today um, with this thesis, these capital partners and this appetite for call it a half a billion dollars a year of development, that kind of platform really kind of kicked off probably three or four years ago yeah. um, where, we, where we had this true desire to do that much every year. And that's when they said, we got to bring Matt on. <laughs> that's when I was this. fortunate enough to uh, have been, you know, our old, the way we used to do it is all the acquisitions and investments people that w- they all worked on um, student and residential together. And senior was its own kind of group. And as the residential got more and more refined and, and grew larger and larger, we, we pulled them apart. And I was fortunate enough to land with the residential uh, pipeline. Very nice. Yeah. Um, do you usually develop from scratch or do you redevelop buildings? 90%, 95% is ground up. Yeah. We've done some historic adaptive reuse stuff in Chicago. Arkadold Colony is one downtown here and one's called Infinite. Those are student housing properties. 
we looked at kicking off an adaptive reuse vertical uh, in residential where we would go and do full gut renovations of, of high-rise properties. However, you know, you find that it's, they're harder, quite frankly, than building it on up. Right. Yeah. More surprises, different types of tax structures with, you know, um, historic tax credits and new market tax credits. And there's experts in that that are really good at it and do beautiful stuff. And we've done some really great buildings and gotten rewards for them. But um, to scale and grow at the pace that we'd like to, it's, it's actually easier to do ground up for us right now. So what do you think is, what would you attribute the rapid growth and success of CA to? I, mean, I have to imagine there are other companies that have similar models, but CA's growth is remarkable in terms of what it's done. Yeah, I mean, it's largely attributed to our CEO, who's you know just an absolute um, amazing entrepreneur and, and business development guy, clearly. Always a good start. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, I can't keep up with him. You know, no one can. Yeah. Um, it, once he creates new businesses, you know, as, as fast as anyone that I've met, you know, ever has. But I think the, the, the niche business of student housing was, was a home run and, and it's become a little bit less niche now. Mm-hmm. But when he started in it um, and saw the ability to enter that space and, and take off, I think that was a huge part of the, the success of the company in the beginning. And then following that was senior housing, similarly. Like, uh, we've done, I think, 20 deals now in three years or something like that in senior. Again, niche business. Um, in residential, um, it really across all three of those, and I speak a little bit less about office because it's more acquisitive and it's really run kind of as a different company. So it's not much, as much in the development space as we are. Um, and industrial, again, is brand new. Um, the relationships, it's a very, we're very relationship driven. And so a lot of our deals, I think we've built 90 to 100 buildings now across the country throughout the, the three verticals. Half have probably been in JV structures. Mm-hmm. And most large institutional companies like ours, I'd almost call us quasi-institutional, you know, can't partner and can't get creative and don't necessarily want to have landowners roll into deals or don't want to have a small developer as a partner. They want to control everything. Right. And Tom is an extremely um, just good and fair deal maker and has taught us all to be the same. So we, we've just got a tremendous amount of volume coming in from people that want to work with us as partners. And that's pretty rare. And that's, I think, really feel the growth. Yeah. No, that's really smart. Don't uh, try to squeeze as much out of each deal as you possibly can. Make exactly. everybody win. Exactly. Uh, have the long-term view. Right. And uh, that it, the companies that, a lot of companies say that, but the companies that actually do it right. seem to reap the benefits of the long-term view. Yeah. Um, you guys are moving into a lot of different geographic markets because you started in Champaign, Chicago, and mm-hmm. in this area. Uh, what geographic regions are, are you looking at the most right now? So again, it's kind of for residential, I'd say we kind of are looking at the middle of the country for high rise, where we can still afford again to build it. So we're in um, Chicago, Minneapolis, um, Nashville, Atlanta, and then kind of moving, I guess, west, Denver, Phoenix. Those are kind of our high rise markets right now. Um, for the lower rise three story, we're in the suburbs. It's all suburban. San, uh, San Francisco, hmm. Seattle, Denver. We're kind of doing both, and then we're looking at San Diego, LA, as well for that strategy. Um, the two markets we'd love to be in that we haven't been able to crack at all are Austin and Boston. Really, um, we just can't quite figure it out, and so we're taking the approach that we've. 
um, taken to grow for our last com- comment, which is find a partner. Find a local group that's got a deal tied up and try to you know, prove to them that we're the best balance sheet partner and, and development partner for them. Um, Boston's extremely expensive and extremely tight market, and Austin has some nuance to it that with real estate taxes and whatnot that are a little detailed that we just can't haven't quite figured out. But um, high rise again, kind of staying you know Midwest, Southeast, and then kind of garden out out west right now. Yeah, well, a couple of questions I have about developers pushing geographic boundaries is I've always wondered um, just how do you find good construction partners do you use national companies I mean it must be so hard to find somebody to build the quality that you want to build in an area where you know you, you do a bunch of deals in Chicago you're gonna know mm-hmm. what subs and what contractors are good and have a good reputation but how do you figure that out when you're pushing geographic boundaries well, we're fortunate enough, and I'm not close, super close to the construction team because um, I'm way on the front end, and they're obviously, you know, building the building once I kind of exit the process. But um, because we've entitled, because of the student housing business being so expansive, you know, most multifamily developers target a region or mm-hmm. maybe they're national, but they're in eight markets or ten markets. You know, we're in thirty states for for student because universities are everywhere. So. I think what CA was able to do was to, was to be able to build relationships with national or regional folks all over the country over the last 15 years. And so I get to benefit from that on the residential side. If I want to go see a deal in, um, you know, in Seattle, we've built student housing all over Washington. We've built it in Idaho. You know, we've built it up in California. So we kind of know the regionals. Yeah. Uh, we try to use nationals if we can just because the biggest are, quite frankly, usually the best. We think, um, and I, I don't think I'm speaking a little out of school on construction, but I, I think if you were a growing company, it'd be much harder, clearly, to get have confidence in a new contractor. We're not using a whole lot of new contractors these days. I will say we have had a harder time with the garden style to find a reliable um, source of numbers. Okay, you know when we bid a garden deal out west, I could see a 20% spread in the bidding. We bid a high rise in Atlanta and it might be a 2% spread because the market is so much more sophisticated in that space. Yeah. And so, I mean, literally we have a $120 million hard cost budget for a deal in Atlanta. I think it came in within $2,000 know, $2, from three contractors. And I've got a deal on the sticks of San Francisco, East Bay, um, where the spread was probably 30% top to bottom on the pricing. That, that's quite a spread. Yeah. Um, and then you're moving international. You've opened up the London office. Um, I guess, just why are you moving to other markets? Is it just because why not? Other mm-hmm. markets are good markets. Mm-hmm. Or do you have a particular thesis or reason for that kind of expansion? So uh, that's a really a brand new uh, sector for us and driven largely by, by Tom and, and JJ Smith, who also went to school with us, uh, who's our head of um, president of, of student living, mm-hmm. uh, has been very involved there. It, we're not really looking at it for residential, so I don't have a very strong opinion on it yet. I think we want to start with student housing. Again, being the pioneers here, I think the thought is, 
and I know uh, very little about this, so I want to clarify that. <laughs> it's funny because I have a tour. Yeah, I know more listening. than maybe most of the listeners, but I think that the idea is that student housing in Europe is, it really doesn't exist, this purpose-built student housing. Most of the students live in apartments or houses or old buildings, and they, they didn't, they haven't had any sort of development like we've had. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm assuming that our thought is that um, I don't think we'll do the same thing there that we did here. That would be much way of an overstatement, but that there's just a big need for some new construction, high quality apartments there for students. Um, would we follow that with multifamily? Likely, but I, it's definitely a student housing focused initiative right now. Um, just seeing a need for that there. That makes that makes sense. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about development in Chicago right now? I, I gotta say, pers- I hear a lot of, there's a lot of talk about people being down on developing in Chicago, and I'll be the first to say that I'm not, I don't know everything about what's going on in the government. I try to pay attention. Mm-hmm. It seems like other people have really strong opinions about mm-hmm. positive and negative about it. Uh, just, is it something you're taking into consideration? Are you checking out other areas? How do you... How does CA feel about it? Yeah, I mean, we love Chicago still. Um, obviously, being based here, we think we know it. We, we certainly know it better than any other market that we're in. And I think, like any market, if you're on the right corner with the right thesis for the building and the right management, you're gonna you're gonna lease it successfully. Um, capital markets aren't as fond of the Midwest right now, in our opinion, as they are of the coasts and some of the stronger growth markets. Obviously, people read about population loss here and they freak out. It's a total misnomer given that our renters are not the ones that are probably leaving the state. Right. Um, job growth downtown is is extremely strong. Um, so we're doing, we've got a couple projects here. We just su- successfully sold a 320 unit on 1140 South Wabash. Oh, yeah. Which was a fantastic b- b- deal for us. And um, we're about to kick off a very large project. Um, it's a 640 unit deal. Uh, downtown. So we, we are certainly still investing here. I can tell you from a high, high level kind of capital where they want us to go, it's it's outside of Chicago. Um, but again, if you have the right deal, I mean, it's, it's super strong in the right neighborhoods. People I would like lo- good deals. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would love to, I would say, you know, I'm not looking for much here right now in residential, but... This is no uh, secret. Fulton Market would certainly still be something that we'd love to do. We haven't done, we built Arcadia Tower before I was with CA, which is the building on the highway with the guys running on the side of the parking. There's like running figures on the side of the parking screening. Yeah. uh, Right on the highway there. And that was a great deal for us. But that was kind of almost before the true boom hit. And um, other than that, we haven't really cracked the West Loop. So that would be a place I'd like to be. Where, uh, what's a really difficult market that just going in, you just think to yourself, oh, I don't even know if I should, it's hard to pencil out in this market. Nationally or in Chicago? Um, let's do both. Nationally, Boston. I mean, I was there a couple weeks ago and I mean, they'll, if you meet with brokers, they'll almost talk you out of even, they just tell you to turn around. (laughs) Well, Boston's so insular though. It's so insular. They don't don't like you coming into their market. The city doesn't really want to see development. The people there don't want to see outsiders developing there. Um, It's extremely expensive to build. It's extremely confusing. I mean, it's, it's just a tough, everything's tough. Everything's against you. However, 
if you do build, you know, rents are extremely strong, and I think they're going to continue to be for that for those reasons. Um, I just think cracking it without a partner there is going to be very hard, if not impossible. Yeah. Um, especially not being singularly focused on that market. Um, locally, I would say what I just said, you know, full market. I mean, I think that, yeah. I think there's land available and there's sites available, but they they become extremely expensive. I mean, the pricing there has gone up, you know, 500% or something yeah, over the last couple of years. So um, I think Chicago is not a place that it's super challenging to find a deal. Um, if you want to be in, you know, the Loop or River North or River West. Um, but full market has certainly gotten pricey. Well, tell us just a little bit about your background because this is this is the second exciting fast growing company that you've worked for mm -hmm. I mean you were with Pangea during their boom mm -hmm. uh, so tell us a little bit about your experience there and how it's different in thesis and uh, from what you're doing now well Pangea was a super entrepreneurial shop as well um, Al Goldstein like Tom Scott both won the what was it? The Ernst and Young uh, Entrepreneur of the Year. So right. I like to work. I want to work for guys like that. Um, yeah. And that was started during the recession. So much different environment, and it was really a distressed, a distressed fund uh, environment. You know, it was, a, it was structured as a private REIT, but the idea there was to take advantage of the the distressed pricing market and. Um, so complete opposite, really. We were buying notes uh, in bulk. We were buying vacant property. We were closing 60 deals a year. You know, we were buying note packages of, it's sometimes 20, 10 to 20 properties. Um, so fast moving, smaller deals, huge yields, and just a very young and more almost, it almost felt like a, a, a tech company. You know, yeah, right. Um, with real estate bones, but a little bit more simple real estate with much more sophisticated kind of high speed execution. Um, CA is development, so it's much slower in the nature of each deal. It takes two to three years to get one deal done. Yeah, you know, they're there. We were doing deals in seven days if we had to. You know, no, <laughs> we come crazy. on market Monday, we'd buy it yeah. Friday. So um, the speed of the execution there was was kind of fun. It's almost like trading real estate. And sure, sure. Here it's, you know, huge class A plus development is, is a little bit different, but both are very entrepreneurial in nature. So what do you think is some of the, the biggest challenges that you see right now in the marketplace towards growing? You know, I think the construction pricing is number one for sure. Um, land pricing has gotten has gotten up there, but there's only a certain level where landowners can just, they're not going to get the number, right? So um, when you look at a $100 million development, um, this is very rough and it changes market to market, but 10% of that might be land. 75% of that might be, uh, will be hard costs, your hard cost budget, which includes some other things. Mm -hmm. And the remaining 15% being your soft costs. So what's going to be the hardest thing? I mean, if, if construction prices get out of control, there's nothing you can do about it. If your land price gets a little high, you can you can kind of live with it. And soft costs, which include interest carry and everything else, that people always talk about with more of a single-family home environment, certainly extremely impactful to your returns, but also doesn't necessarily make or break a deal. But if your hard costs are over budget, your deal's done. Is the construction prices going up because the physical hard costs, the steel, the the nuts and bolts going up or is it the labor is there a labor shortage it's it's all of the above i mean it's 
Labor shortage is a huge part of it. Um, it's it's the, the the steel and the glass and everything else that's that's gone up tenfold. Um, you know, lumber and even the low rise stuff has, has gone up tremendously. But um, I think it's also a factor of these companies just being extremely busy. You know, and it's 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 labor, but it's also just the company's bandwidth in general. Um, so there, people are charging numbers that we've just never we've never seen. Um. What do you th- a lot of people have talked about this being near the end of the cycle. Are you all doing anything to prepare for end of a cycle? Do you anticipate it? Uh, is there anything you're doing differently? Not really. I mean, we're being very careful and selective of our projects, um, making sure that, you know, I guess more than anything, doing extra diligence on the front end with our team members, meaning more communicative between my group and the operations group and the development group, kind of working hand in hand, make sure all, everything's, you know, checking out. We might've been a little bit looser with things five years ago. Sure. Knowing that the market could probably save you because everything's going up. Here, you can't underwrite as much rent growth, let's put it that way, you can't underwrite. It's just you guys getting better, you know? It's us getting better, but yeah. you know, trying to be more careful. Yeah. We're pretty low leverage on our deals, so you know, what happened with the last recession isn't really that anyone's concerned these days, that people are gonna, you know, that the life, that everything's just gonna fall apart, and people are gonna start losing buildings, and that's just not gonna happen. Um, unless, you know, not gonna lie, there you go. But, but of course, you could lease up to 90%, which means you're missing your, you know, returns and you're missing your promote on the on the exit and sure. So the risk is certainly there, but it's it's much better mitigated than it was the last time we went through this end of cycle thing. Yeah, is there any asset class that you CA isn't investing in right now? I know you have the industrial, you have multifamily, you have student housing, and senior housing, retail. I don't see retail. Yeah, we yeah. own about 400,000, I think it is. It's, it's always moving square feet of retail, but that's all in our the base of our buildings. We don't have any freestanding retail. Uh, we are looking at the redevelopment of several uh, mall sites. That's kind of a new, you know, if you're a large developer, it's not new to them. I mean, everyone's looking at it, but the closed Sears, the closed Macy's, the closed Kmart's, whatever it is. Um, generally speaking, those are not in great locations for multifamily development, but it, coastally, if you look on the coast, it, it, it's starting to make sense where the rents are high enough where you can build yeah. on an old, you know, an old parking lot next to a mall and it actually, it, if you do it right, can be a pretty nice development. So we're talking to some of the large mall owners about that, but not investing in the retail sector ourselves. Yeah. Is there um, a, another line of business that you all haven't dipped into that you're, you're eyeing that you think might be prime for, for growth in the future? Um, we're looking at co-living. Oh, yeah. Um, which, again, no secret there. It's a, it's a growing niche sector. We like the niche stuff. It's similar to the student housing dorm situation. Student housing for adults, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, we'll be more uh, creative probably than that, putting it that simply, um, because there's a lot of different definitions of co-living. We'll sit internally in the office and debate what does co-living actually mean yeah, to people. Right. Um, some people think it means four bedrooms with locked doors and no living room. You know, some people th- and that's the whole building. And some people think it's eight bedrooms and they all share a huge communal living room and a kitchen. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Yeah, the pass. Uh, 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, years ago, a friend of I, I don't know if you know Mike Betcher from college, but um, we came up with the Urban Fraternity. That was a concept that we were going to build this big house in, in yeah. the city and put in a huge kitchen and have a bunch of people live in it. And that's basically, you know, now people are doing it. Yeah. We were ahead of the curve. We didn't execute on it, but. Well, you know, it's like WeWork has a big facility in New York. We had an attorney who's here and she got a job in house to go and uh, live in New York. And we're like, you know, great. That was an awesome job. Yeah. Like, and, and so, but it's funny because she was texting us and saying that she lives in one of these co-working spaces, but the TV is down the hall in the living room. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that a dorm? Yeah. <laughs> like, how is that not a dorm? But, it's a dorm. you know, people like it. It makes sense for people that you're moving to a big city and you don't know where to live and you, you can use that temporarily. Right. It's great for them. They can use it for their employees. Right. They can use it for... There's, there's a bunch of different applications where it makes a lot of sense. Sure. It also helps on the in the price point. I mean, you know, what everyone's worried about with the Class A apartment market in overbuilding is just how many people can afford to pay, you know, $2,000 for a one bedroom in Chicago. You know, it's a limited pool. And then you go down to, you know, just multiple bedroom units and your chunk rent goes down per bedroom, but you still have to have roommates. It's not that many people that want to live with roommates anymore. So. This is the way, the two ways to really get that chunk rent down for a new building is micro units or co-living. Um, but in micro units, you still have to build a kitchen and bath for every unit. So it's, it's pretty expensive actually to build those. So this is a way to get into a brand new building with amenities at a, call it a thousand dollar bedroom rate. I mean, it's again, it's by the bedroom. It is the student housing kind of a concept. One thing I gotta ask you, cause I'm always interested in it, is are you all looking at opportunity zone areas? It's the, it's the topic of the day. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious as to your opinion, because I see a lot of deals right now, but they're usually from one or two capital sources, maybe a wealthy family office or an individual who has a capital gains issue or, mm -hmm. or is looking at a particular uh, investment uh, but I've also heard from people that are in the business of raising money from institutional investors that institutional investors really don't want any part of the restrictions that come along with opportunity zone investing, i.e. the holding, or is that EG, uh, holding the asset for 10 plus years right. are, are being bound to restricting themselves to the idea that they're going to be in any particular investment for more than 10 years or various other restrictions that might be in place. And I was just wondering, since you're uh, more on the institutional investor side or you are, uh, how are your institutional investors looking at opportunity zones or are they not at all? So I, I um, we have a whole investment management team who does, you know, most, most of the high level conversations with those partners. From what I've heard, though, just anecdotally, I don't think the institutional groups are looking at all, at least with us at OZs. We're not looking at that as a strategy. However, um, we have met several family office type funds that have come to us and asked us to find those types of developments. So we're seeing there's three or four in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Dave Pavlik, I don't remember Dave, works for Dave. one. He has one, actually. Um, He's, he has what, a family office or not? He has a zone? zone fund. Okay. Yeah. So not to give him a, 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 a little piece of the podcast here, but <laughs> it's fine. you should have him on at some point. That'd be quite entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, um, so we, we have a deal in Sacramento, um, which happened to be in an OZ. 
and it was great that it was because Sacramento is one of those markets that we love fundamentally, but it's not a super, uh, it's not on the high of the short list, I guess, for institutional capital. It's always been kind of that secondary kind of market. Um, so we had a site, this was kind of from the old guard where we love, we love the site at CA. We were buying it, we're building it, but we didn't really have the capital up front. And as soon as it was announced that it was in an opportunity zone, we had five term sheets in like a month. Yeah. So it's a tremendous investment vehicle. All those term sheets came from groups that were deploying high net worth capital. None of those came from institutional capital. Um, so we, we love it. I mean, we'd, we'd love to do more NOZs um, if they happen to be deals that we already like, but we're just not focused on it. Right. As a primary investment. That's how I'm seeing it. Yeah. I'm seeing I've got three, almost four pending right now. Okay. And... Yeah, none of them are institutional investors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just the, maybe that'll change. It's I just think it's what just I'm a, seeing right now. Yeah, I think it's just got to be a true long-term vision and a long-term hold, and it's harder for institutions, you know, I think to to want to put out money for that long of a period of time. I mean, you know, you, it's just that ten year plus is a is a long hold period. Yeah. But for a high net worth person who sees that huge advantage of, of the capital gains, you know going away that's that's a pretty easy decision yeah and most of the ones i'm seeing are actually people that are passionate about building in those areas mm-hmm. and we're doing it already exactly and now right. they're they're getting a few other investors or they're getting um bigger projects or they're just looking at it more doing what they would maybe they would have done the deal anyway no you know, that's exactly just, right yeah that's exactly right um california's got a few kind of micro markets where that has been the case. Um, I had a call, was it yesterday, with a smaller developer there who we'd like to kind of do what CA does, you know, help him grow and do larger projects. And that was that comment is I already targeted this one area as my area to develop in, and then they named it an OZ. Now he has an OZ fund. You know, it just <laughs> yeah. kind of forced him into this space. Right. Because why wouldn't you? I mean, you yeah. kind of have, I mean, yeah. you, now he's an expert and he's going to panels and he's an OZ guy. But I think, I think following the, the, the initial investment thesis is a smart way to go about it. All right, we're, we're winding down. Almost, we'll get you out of here soon for your long drive, you know, a few floors <laughs> away. Uh, but I just want to know, what is your favorite project that you've worked on at CA Ventures? Is it the Whopper deal? Well, yeah, I wasn't there for that one. Uh, we're, we're building one, and so, because these deals take so long, and I'm in year, th- not even in year three, or I haven't finished year three, I guess I should say. Um, there's one in Penn State that I worked on as a when I was on the student housing team a year and a half ago that will probably be one of the best student housing projects in the country at any school. Um, cool. Right in the heart of campus, right on College Avenue, right across from their main quad. Um, mixed use in nature, so tons of great retail, including a lot of the... Um, neighboring retail and kind of creating a whole almost neighborhood out of this central location. So seeing that one get done will be pretty cool. Um, in residential, you know, we're f- finishing the first one that was kind of my, you know, deal, I guess, from a couple of years ago in Chicago and Belmont. It's a small little guy, 80 units, 18 stories. That's which, pretty, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> big, huge, especially there. Big for what I was doing before, but, you know, small for what we're doing now. Yeah. But that'll be a nice boutique you know, building. I always live near Belmont, so that one will be fun to see uh, finish off. That's really cool. Yeah. Is there any uh, project that's been, let's just call it the most challenging, not the worst? Sac- Sacramento. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first deal we worked. I worked on in, when the residential group was kind of kicking off before we had kind of refined what we wanted to, wanted to and should be doing, I guess. And um, it's a very, very long story. 
it's been two and a half years. We're finally about to close it with an OZ fund. But um, we pivoted sites, we changed architects, we changed contractors, we learned about California the hard way. <laughs> um, California is a tough place to do business, but you know, again, once you get re- refine your process and get better at it, uh, we think we've kind of kind of figured it out. But yeah, that deal has been <laughs> a bit of a nightmare for two years. Yeah, well, we'll have to uh, buy you a beer and get the get the full story off yeah. the air on oh, that yeah, one for sure. Well, man, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for telling us about CA Ventures. And, um, yeah, I just really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice. And no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily Clark Hill, PLC.